The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mindspace. In this week's show, our guest is Darren Doherty from Victoria, Australia, and the nonprofit Regrarians. He's an expert in regenerative agriculture and has extensive experience across the world in product design, development, management, and training. Darren is a fifth-generation Bendigo region farmer, developer, author, and trainer, and has been involved in the design and development of nearly 2,000 mostly broad acre projects across six continents and close to 50 countries. Darren is the originator of the Regrarians platform process, which outlines the strategic and logical process to development of regenerative agricultural systems. Darren and his wife Lisa are the directors of Regrarians, family-operated nonprofit delivering consulting, events, development, and agricultural media products. I am um, a novice when it comes down to permaculture or regenerative design, so if you can please educate us on what all that is about. Can you tell us about your background and interest in regenerative agriculture? Uh, my background is that I, um, I'm an Australian, fifth generation Australian um, of Irish and German heritage. Um, my family's been in the same region where I've grown up and lived since the 1850s. I grew up on our fifth generation farm um, after my father was killed in Vietnam as a, when I was a baby. So I grew up on my maternal grandparents' farm and I uh, learned a lot from my grandparents who were very skilled and um, adept people. And our property was uh, pretty well drought-proof because we had a whole water harvesting system there, the water reticulation system. And so I grew up in that environment. I left left home um, when I was about 18, travelled Australia, w- um, worked in hospitality as a chef um, and as a waiter, um, and then came, got out of that and ran a organic, I was a manager of an organic green grocer, or grocer, in my hometown for a couple of years where I met a lot of um, farmers uh, in central Victoria where I'm from in southern Australia um, who were leaders in the organic movement back in the, it was in the late 80s, early 90s and that sort of rekindled my interest in agriculture and I found myself giving a lot of them advice um, in t- but mostly knowledge transfer because they'd ask, you know, um, I'd ask God, you know, this person, what are they doing about this? And so I'd tell them, and sort of all it went went on from there. And then people started to pay me to do it. And I've been in the knowledge transfer business and uh, ever since. But um, I also help people with designing their farms, their farm layouts, using a whole range of methodology. So um, especially where I've got. Got, got to in my early part of my life and then the second half has been designing and planning and um, and developing and uh, helping people with their achieve their goals in life. So right now you're in your Rex World Tour and doing workshops 
and uh, I've seen um, the information about the workshops, and they seem very technical. Can you explain to us, uh, lay people who are not familiar with ecological farming, how all this works and how the 10 topics you cover all work together? I know you cover climate, geography, water, access, forestry, buildings, fencing, soils, economy, and energy. So how how is all that uh, integrated into your program? Um, well, the, the, we don't necessarily push any mode of agriculture. Um, what we try and do is meet people where they are. So I don't push um, people into being ecological farmers or biodynamic or organic or permaculture or anything. Um, I would then make their own mind up about that um, because uh, it's not, we're, not in, we're not evangelists and we don't push any particular barrow. Naturally, I have a um, predilection towards more ecological um, production methods, but um, we, that's something you have to get to um, when you can as opposed to being forced to do. Um, but what we do is um, we focus on each of those topics which you just mentioned each day. So or, or we focus on a topic a day. So um, the whole purpose and strategy of that being um, based on the late T.A. Yeomans, who was an Australian mining engineer and uh, geologist and mine developer um, who started farming himself in his mid-40s. He bought several farms in just um, outside of Sydney in New South Wales and uh, developed those and used a lot of the techniques that he'd um, seen and worked with in mining, especially around water harvesting and the supply, and um, and then also did a lot of soil development work and integrated trees. And he came up with, in 1958, with what's called the key line scale of permanence, and um, it's... The first eight of those, of our ten uh, uh, elements to our uh, Regrarians platform are from Yeomans, and then we added on economy and energy. Um, Yeomans system and ours are about a, a focus on uh, process and priority and, um, and what's easily influenced. The climate of a landscape is, or the climate of a place is very difficult to change if it's not impossible, and um, so it's something that we have uh, very little bearing on, um, so we've got to work within that. Um, one climate that we've added to Yeoman's uh, scale is uh, the climate of the mind, um, because that is something that's uh, varying, varying in its difficulty of, uh, of, of change. Um, some humans are built for change, and that, um, most are not. Um, and so uh, we've got to work with uh, with the ways and means of enacting change, and uh, so we use holistic management as a tool for that and a number of other tools. Um, and so our purpose is to use or help people develop a, um, what's called a holistic context where they're trying to address through their work um, and through their expression on land uh, the a quality of life, a statement around the quality of life. So, actually, say what you what makes you have a quality of life. Um, try and have forms of production which support that, and then try and create a future resource base that um, 
that nurtures the future for you in, in whatever way you self-determine. So we try and have that holistic context spelled out or spelt out at the start of one of these events or in a consultancy or a design or whatever because that then becomes the, the sort of guiding framework for how we'll then address the context of the landscape and, uh, and the production systems that we're going to be working with. So, um, so we go through the, the workshop um, or the training. It's really a professional development training, to be quite honest. Most of the people who participate are themselves land managers and uh, they're looking at um, using this, what is in effect an open consultancy with a real farmer on a real, on a, on a real piece, a uh, real farm, um, as a model that they can then use or a process that they can use themselves. So they get a practice run on someone else's property. And, um, and the land, landowner who's the host um, gets to have 20 or 30 people turn up and for 10 days and get all of this advice and um, they actually do it at a profit because uh, they, they get a profit share from the workshop. So instead of them paying me for a consultancy, um, uh, they, uh, they get a whole uh, workshop, and a, very, a lot of inquiry. Um, they meet a lot of great people and they come away with, everyone comes away with uh, having done a pretty detailed investigation of a landscape and, uh, and uh, nurtured people's lives along the way. So it's, it's a pretty, it's for us and for the people who get involved, it's a, it's a pretty good event, really. Wonderful. So you said that you don't push um, any type of ecological uh, farming, but can you tell us the difference between regenerative agriculture and permaculture for us that are still becoming familiar with these terms? Permaculture is a set of three ethics, or permaculture design, as it should be called, um, permaculture design is a set of three ethics care of the people, care of the earth and return of surplus more or less um, and then there's a whole set of, uh, of principles that have been outlined by the co-founders of perma or co-originators of permaculture design David Holmgren and Bill Mollison and um, those design principles um, were, were used with that specific intent um, um, is uh, is what called is what's called permaculture design. So it's a particular methodology. Um, regenerative design or regenerative agriculture. Uh, Robert Rodale of the Rodale Institute came up with the term regenerative agriculture. I don't know who came up with the term regenerative design, but it's sort of becoming um, the new buzzword as far as sort of taking over from where sustainability as a word um, once. It still does reside in the in a, people trying to dis, to um, people trying to define what it is that we want to achieve, and I'm not sure that there are actually any truly um, when you know when you study a completely regenerative agriculture. So a regenerative agriculture to me um, is one where um, you get a, a level of self perpetuation and that the uh, that the that the volume of output is well, well in excess of the volume of input. Um, so I think that people are certainly on their way to getting that, um, but uh, a lot of these systems are in their relative infancy, and uh, they're um, so. So there's 
so I think that you know we've got you've basically got one system there in permaculture design, which is a design framework, um, and then you've got regenerative design, which is a sort of a mon- an all-encompassing moniker that people have applied to uh, their goal um, to do just that, to have regenerative um, ecologies um, or ecosystems on their on their uh, on their farms and uh, on their systems. Do any of these um, approaches um, help combat climate change, or is it more about them being able to have something to pass on to the next generation that it is sustainable? I think most certainly. Um, if you look at um, the work of Albert Bates um, in in especially in in his work in in biochar and um, pyrolysis. Um, and you see the work that people are doing in in uh, copper space management of uh, forestry systems, like trees that keep growing after you cut them down, and all of that sort of thing. And then you look at the work of of people like uh, Eric Toensmeyer and his latest book on carbon farming. Uh, Eric's a um, Yale professor, um, and he sort of outlines a whole host of um, these uh, farm management strategies which are part of all of this um, it's, a, it's a fundamental of regenerative agriculture that one of the byproducts of doing so would be a, a soil that is getting better and richer and deeper over time and that the level of inputs required to it are actually diminishing over time as well in order to maintain or in, in, indeed increase yields over time so um, in order for you to do that, you have to have a level of carbon sequestration. So um, it's very much a feature of particularly uh, the narrative around and the practice around regenerative agriculture has very much been um, uh, consistent in the timeline with uh, so-called carbon farming where um, people are, are farming uh, with the intent um, the primary intent of um, sequestering carbon into the soil um, with the almost incidental but intended byproduct of that being um, being financial um, uh, financial success, social success and um, and that comes of course with uh, selling you know, producing products, primary products off the off that land at a, at a profit. So, um, so yeah, definitely, climate change and um, and uh, soil carbon sequestration are, are hand in hand. Uh, I don't think there's really any other um, method that we have that's really feasible um, apart from carbon farming to uh, to deal with the climate crisis that we have. You mentioned two terms of Albert Bates. Uh research or work uh you know he's from here from the farm um can you can you define those two terms a biochar is and pyrolysis pyrolysis is a, a fancy term for making charcoal um and uh it's the actual process by which one does that um so you uh, you ignite uh, combustible materials such as or carbonaceous materials, and then you um, and then you um, 
you uh, do that in an environment where you can adjust the levels of oxygen so that you can create a substantial naked amount of charcoal or char and then that char, if it's called biochar, um, is developed with the intent of being um, possibly eaten by a human um, or by other other livestock um, or being used as an additive to put into the soil. And so it basically locks in time the carbon that makes up things like trees and makes up things like corn stalks and other waste materials, wood, all the rest of it, um, because it mineralizes the carbon and, uh, and it becomes incredibly stable. Um, it's not a carbon that... Uh, that um, is necessarily it's, it, it is organic, but it's not. Um, it's chemically organic, of course, but um, it doesn't. Um, it's it's not a it's not a material that's in the soil that uh, that can hold, that can exchange nutrients easily. But it, uh, but uh, it um, as easily as say something like humus does, which is a which is a moister, fresher, and less stable form of um, carbon. So it's a way of getting that carbon that's, um, that's out there and putting it into the soil where it will perform a whole range of services, holding minerals, hot being a place for microorganisms to reside and interact, um, as well as being a place where you can take today's carbon and put it into the ground and hold it there as opposed to having it released back into the atmosphere by some decomposition process or by combustion itself um, where we completely incinerate um, that material. Is there any programs that you know of uh, from different governments or countries where they are educating the public or um, people of... of a limited education or a lower means about these processes or is it mostly uh, an elite group of, of well-educated people who are learning about this and trying to implement it? I think there's both. Um, I know that I have colleagues in um, Latin America um, who, are, who are working with campesinos, uh, peasant farmers throughout Latin America um, so that they're by no means elitist. Um, and uh, they they train them in a whole range. It's an organisation called Mas Humus, and there's a few others there. There's La uh, Via Campesina and uh, and so on. Um, people who are working with um, with uh, quite poor people and poor farmers around the world to uh, try and uh, bridge the terms of trade that have befallen them where. Um, they're at the at the bottom of the agricultural food chain, getting paid terribly, um, being uh, being being exploited terribly, um, and have uh, been coerced into the myth that is the green revolution. Um, certainly increased yields, but uh, but at a cost um, because people then became seduced into the. Uh, into thinking that it was reasonable to uh, to use artificial fertilisers and improved so-called improved varieties 
when um, those varieties are actually dependent on higher than well levels of artificial fertility that are not sustainable in the least, and then we're we've, we've, we're declining in the in the amount of phosphorus that we've got now that we've reached. We've gone over the top of the fossil carbon, uh, so the fossil um, uh, phosphorus mountain, and so there's no more phosphorus being made or available than what there is now. So we're um, we've reached the end of the line on that one, and so a lot of these uh, poor farmers around the world, and indeed uh, rich farmers around the world, are going to find it very very difficult in the future just to be able to sustain the use of artificial phosphorus. Nitrogen is another thing. Uh, here in this country, um, you know, it takes 34,000 pounds of natural gas to produce uh, one tonne of, um, of anhydrous ammonia, which is a, one of the most primary inputs. Um, in uh, It's one of the primary nit- nitrogenous inputs in in uh, corn production and other crop production in this country, and um, you know the average the average uh, use of uh, or application rate is two to four hundred pounds per acre. So that equates to thirty two hundred to sixty four hundred pounds of natural gas being needed to to uh, grow a crop of corn every year, right? That's clearly not a sustainable game. So what we're trying to show to people is, okay, that's that natural gas is not going to be there forever. Um, and as it gets less in quantity or its needs are greater elsewhere, like heating people's houses, um, then, um, then you'll suffer at, um, by not being able to have access to it. So you better find out other ways in which you can um, um, get your phosphorus and nitrogen needs because you're not going to get it out of a, out of a can anymore. So, so we, we, we sort of try and work through the realities of all of this and try and make people aware that they're part of a global play here. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you're in agriculture, you're in the business of feeding the world. And if you want to keep doing it, well, then you need to you need to know you need to know about scarcity, and you need to know about the resources that you're using, so, um, which you may well continue to use. But be strategic about weaning yourself off them, perhaps over time, so that you can um, sustain yourself and sustain your family, and sustain and hopefully regenerate uh, all of those and your landscape and your soil, um, because these things aren't going to be around forever. So is the general public or, I guess, um, the people who are mass-producing um, vegetables or fruit, do they are they trying to um, become more conscientious of, of what's going on with the environment from, from what you see, or they just don't care and they're exploiting as much as they can so they can produce more and make more money? Like, you hear that from, from a lot of groups, but is it, is it really true? I think there's there's a combination of that. There's certainly people out there whose um, whose view of the landscape um, is fairly narrow. Um, it's certainly it's certainly the case if you do a um, a contemporary 
agricultural science degree or in many cases a contemporary um, horticulture degree, um, then orthodoxy is not um, about um, engaging in a relationship with the ecology of your landscape. It's about, it's about engaging in a relationship with, with inputs um, and, and plants so that they can be relatively exploited. So there's certainly that within orthodoxy. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have, I think, a confused view of um, of what this is all about, and they some of them wake up to it in that they are country people, and so they're out there. And one, of, you know, especially when you ask them, "Well, why are you doing this? I mean, why are you out in this country landscape, and why, you know, do you, do you what what actually makes you get out of bed and do this every day?" And because it is, you know, for, it's pretty hard work. I mean, you get paid very badly usually and um, it's fairly thankless work. It's the most, I mean, from my perspective, being a farmer is by far the most important job on the planet, apart from being a, a mother. Um, and, um, and yet they just don't get rewarded for doing so. And so with that lack of reward comes the lack of potential that people could, uh, if they did have the, an inkling, that they would be more regenerative or sustainable on their operations. But a lot of, by the same token, a lot of other people don't even know what that is. They don't even think about it. So there is, there is a bit of both. And then there's, of course, uh, you know, a fairly minor sector of people out there who, uh, who have woken up um, or, and, and they are doing their level best to make their systems dynamic and, um, and, eco- and ultimately ecological. And they, they've just made a decision that they're going to actually engage in a relationship with natural systems, not be in battle with them. Are you optimistic about the future or pessimistic from what you see around the world? And so I oscillate. It's hard to you know, when you, I drove through the um, Central Valley of California um, twice in two days. I went from Los Angeles to San, well, to, to near Sacramento, and then drove back again. And in doing so, I, um, I, uh, you know, you can't drive through the Central Valley of California without being incredibly impressed by it. Um, and I've done it before, but it was just quite recent. But incredibly impressed by um, how amazing people are at um, creating a whole landscape. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite something. But by the same token, um, when you look at just the vastness of the monocultures and the uh, and the precariousness of the whole thing, and how it's so all of the agroecologies there are so disassociated with the climate. I mean, the whole place the whole Central Valley of California is completely, its success is predicated on this, on adequate snow falling in the Sierra Nevadas. And if that doesn't happen, well, then it's all stuffed. And it it just goes back to being what it was. And that's a, that's a dry land. So um, similarly, we were just in um, uh, Western Kansas uh, where we did a workshop there and it's on the, on the, uh, on the top of the uh, big aquifer there. Um, the world's biggest aquifer, the Oyakula 
I think it's called, or something like that, aquifer. Um, and, you know, it's declined and um, people are still doing centre pivots everywhere and pumping water out of it like it's an inexhaustible resource, and uh, which it's certainly not. And you look at that and go, yeah, this is not too cool. Um, but then, you know, we met... We meet people here and there from those sorts of areas, young people who are still in agriculture or come back to the farm and they've gone out and they've seen the world and they come back and go, you know, this is not the way I'm going to persist here. Um, if we're going to survive here, then we need to do things a bit differently. We'll keep using some of these systems that we've got because that's all we've got at the moment, but we're going to change. So... Then you go to other places and there's a lot, you know, you might be talking about 10 or 15% of the producers who are um, a lot more advanced. Um, typically in cropping, where it's just cropping and horticulture, I see the in those domains the least amount of um, hope in a way, um, in current hope, current signs of hope, largely because um, those kind of people are deeply into the commodity framework um, of uh, marketing and they have no animals on their la- on their landscape so um, they um, don't have necessarily the daily interaction that graziers do so people who have livestock um, tend to have especially those who are growing uh, growing animals on grass I'm not talking about people who are in feedlots because that's a whole other matter. Um, but people who are growing their animals in grassland systems, they tend to be people who are easier to switch um, because they have a bit tighter linkage, I think, in with uh, natural ecosystems because grasslands, especially dryland grasslands, are, um, are uh, quite dynamic ecosystems which are quite responsive to climate. And, uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I get varying levels of hope and um, optimism and uh, and some pessimism, but uh, generally I'm hopeful. So can you tell us a little bit about your collaboration with El Manzano in Chile? I know that you're going there after here. Um, what's going on over there? Like if you could just kind of lay down the landscape and what projects are they working on over there? Um, I actually don't really know. Um, I've not been there before. Um, I've known Griffin, um, Griffin Hope for a number of years. I first met him in New Zealand. Oh, gee, probably, oh, probably close to 10 years ago. Um, and I've met him there once and then he did another course that I did in Chile. I did a five day workshop in Chile about four or five years ago. And then we've just had a few email correspondence since. So I don't really know them at all well, um, apart from over Facebook and email. So I can't really comment on what they're doing there. Um, it does look, at least um, in a picture form, I see a lot of photos and whatnot. It looks like they're doing some impressive stuff. Um, they're certainly, they're certainly uh, from all, like, all accounts, um, turned a lot of people on to you know, sustainable regenerative agriculture and whatnot, um, permaculture and all of that sort of thing in their part of the world, which has uh, only got to be a good thing. And they're, they're, good. they're both professional people, so um, 
they do it in a way that's really professional and um, tight. And, but yes, yeah, so I'll be really intrigued uh, to get down there and see how it's all running. So sorry, I can't be more help there. Tell us about your nonprofit organization and do you um, do you have a a business model to be able to support your nonprofit or do you get grants and other types of financial help from bigger organizations or from government programs in your country? Um, no, we don't get any support from anybody apart from our, the clients that we have as as farm plants. So that, Our enterprise is basically made up of the income that comes to our enterprise comes from a few sources. Um, the primary source um, is, or primary sources are uh, revenues that come from events. So this uh, Rex tour that we're doing, for example, and other farm planning training workshops that we do, shorter ones and whatnot, and appearances, um, that, that uh, funds the, the non-profit. Um, directly um, and also my consulting work so when I do um, um, farm consulting work for for people then that, that money goes to the non-profit um, and then we've also got the Polyphosis film um, which was produced by a non-profit and funded by us um, personally um, as well as donors uh, so we, we sponsored about 50% of that project And um, it, the, the, the proceeds from that, uh, which are just starting to come in, uh, um, also come into the revenues of the non-profit. So we don't take anything from anybody apart from um, the sort of outreach work that we do. And uh, it's in effect, uh, all, they're all donations to it. The, um, we all work. Um, we, I mean, one of the reasons why we developed the non-profit was So that it took away, it sat well with us from the perspective of our own um, ethics as humans and um, beliefs as humans in that we, we didn't want to have an enterprise that was about or that, well, that was about or, or had the perception of being about us actually feathering our own nest from a, cap, from a personal wealth perspective. Um, we also looked at non-profits to us are a timeless model um, because, uh, and we wanted to be able to have it so that our children um, could work within a corporate structure that was immune to um, things like inheritance taxes and those sorts of uh, onerous um, instruments of, uh, of, of um, taxation that uh, that limit the limit the um, uh, limit the ability of one when one generation of humans going to the next generation of humans being without debt um, because we see that as being really important we also want uh, it ties in well as well with our firm belief that uh, land, land that the uh, that land capital natural capital and human capital should in some ways be at least legally Um, distinct and separate um, because we believe that uh, the capital in land um, has been used um, really poorly both in the way that people have used the natural capital of land 
and exploited it to grow things um, and to mine things, but also um, the financial capital through the speculation on landscapes has been something that people have leveraged um, in really unfortunate ways. Um, again, typically towards the destruction of landscapes and the creation of urbanity. Um, and uh, so, so for us, it's quite important to have that structure. Um, and with that, um, you know, we're all volunteers, um, and uh, so we uh, we ourselves uh, living on um, what is in Australia is below the poverty line, but from an income perspective, but from a wealth. Uh, for, from a natural wealth um, and well-being perspective, we're all doing the jobs that we actually love doing. So we're, we're taken care of um, in a way that um, that really sits well with us ethically. So it's good. It's good that we can do that, and we're not beholden to any funding cycles or um, any of that sort of stuff. We, we the, the whole thing functions as well as uh, as we uh, work to make it function. Do you believe that um, all the different things that people do to uh, bring awareness about um, ecology and stopping climate change, that they all work together? Or do you think that the grassroots personal uh, responsibility towards your land and and your part of the world is it's the best way to bring about change? Because in a lot of the progressive uh, shows you hear about, advocacy to change policies, you hear about protests, you hear about all these things, and they put the situation in very apocalyptic apocalyptic terms where it's kind of like, you know, something needs to be done now, but they they don't give people the tools or, or the ability other than go vote or go protest or go advocate. So um, do they all work together or do you think that, like you said, farmers' work is is crucial as compared to the other ways to bring about change? Oh, I think um, everyone... Look, change is a really interesting thing and I've been fascinated by it as someone who works... I mean, I, I what I do in my life is I work... I help people make change. So it's something that obviously fascinates me. Um And I don't pretend to have any great answers on how to make people change because um, apart from um, trying to meet people where they are um, and, you know, the further you remove yourself from people and where they are, in other words, the less participatory you are in the process of meeting people where they are, then I believe um, you'll you'll get you're less likely to get changed. Now that said, um, there's clearly examples where uh, political processes um, have it from time to time enacted change. Policy can be very powerful as a change agent. Now that's not because necessarily it's been popular. It's because uh, there's been um, policy directives which have which have been um, estimated by leaders um, to be something that's necessary and through their social architecture, sometimes they've come out as being right. Um, for both, uh, well, 
and that that may not that that may or may not have been a good thing. Um, you know, I look at one of the most powerful policies in the world's history, in my opinion, was um, were uh, the policies that were enacted by um, the Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts between 1971 and 1976, when he was the Secretary of Agriculture under the um, under the uh, Nixon and uh, Ford uh, presidencies, and you know he. He basically industri- he forced the uh, the modern industrial approach of agriculture uh, um, through his own pathway of policy, and uh, the world has not been the same since. I mean, he, he basically you know he was the one who coined the phrase "get big or get out," and you know which was a pretty pretty big bit of social architecture um, in, you know, he changed the US from definitely being an agrarian economy to uh, to um, being the economy that it is today, and uh, which is definitely not an, ag- ag- an agrarian economy because only 1% of the population are farmers now. So, um, so that was a pretty big thing. Now, um, we don't see... Uh, necessarily, um, and we didn't see any real protests against that, um, and we don't see too much protest um, noise that is, um, how could you say, um, really making big inroads when it comes to climate change work. Um, Most of the work that I've seen that's been really positive on that level has been um, has either been very temporary or undermined by the fossil energy um, companies and lobbies, and uh, has has diminished any progress cons- considerably. So I look at uh, in our my country, um, our country, a few years ago, and it was it was pretty amazing. Um, and it goes straight to the heart of your question. Um, in about in the mid two thousands. The whole carbon farming movement was moving along quite nicely, and uh, they were they were picking. Uh, the, it was it was a, it was a basically a core group of farmers who had come up with a whole range of methodologies, and uh, a lot of people were starting to take these methodologies on because they made common sense. Um, they were profitable. Um, their landscape would get better and all the rest of it. So there were a lot of wins and it was farmers, it was a, it was a farmer-led movement. So the farmers trust other farmers. It wasn't like it was someone like me or some other evangelical engineer or whomever coming down and saying, hey, you must do this. This is the latest and greatest thing. It was farmers showing each other the successes they had and showing their um, reporting on their profit profit changes and all the rest of it, so that was all good. And people changed their practices as a result. That then led ultimately to carbon farming, to the carbon farming um, program that the Australian national government enacted, and a whole lot of other measures. And that they're ultimately being a tax on carbon. And a significant proportion of that tax collected was to be directed towards farmers 
sequestering carbon through their practices. So that was a really fast um, turnover from from the uh, from a group of farmers coming up with a range of means to it actually becoming federal policy. And then, but a change of government occurred and there was an ideology change, an ideological change. We went from progressive to conservative and they wiped the whole thing. And so that was the end of that. So, you know, sometimes change can go forward and then it can go quite a few steps back. And we see that within the civil rights movement in this country and others as well. I mean, there's a lot of steps that went remarkably far in the 60s and then but we still see these steps back um, by um, you know you look at all of the black deaths at the hands of uh, law enforcement in this country and uh, all the rest of it that's still going on and there's still um, inherent racism in this country and ours um, even though um, you know there's been a lot of protest and uh and legislation to uh, to stop it. So it's, it's, it is very interesting this whole business. And a friend of mine, um, Charlie Massey, is doing his PhD on this. He's a, probably a sixty-five-year-old farmer. He's doing his PhD on change, and um, he did a an assessment of about a hundred farmers, a survey of about a hundred farmers who changed to doing more what you might call more regenerative agriculture. And he said that over 80% of them changed because of some crisis. So they'd had a health scare. I mean, you now they've got cancer or there was something that happened that was a catalyst for them changing their agricultural practices, which, I, you know, again, is quite a fascinating thing. Um, you see people change because of crisis management. So it's an interesting thing. Good question. And do you think that's what's going to have to happen in the overall world for governments and people to change their practices? That we we're going to have to face a crisis? Yeah, I think that there'll be that'll be part of it. Um, I mean, we also believe um, that. I mean, uh, uh, there was a TED TEDx talk by Simon Sinek a few years ago, um, which is one of the it's one of the got one of the greatest hit rates of. Um, of TED Talks, and he, he, sp he spoke about the Y principle. And he used the Apple computer uh, or the, uh, the iPhone and the iPod as a, um, and his example of this. He said, you know, around the time of the iPod's release, there were lots of other MP3 players or MP, yeah, MP3 players. So it wasn't as if they were, it was a unique device. But what was unique was the way that Apple actually marketed it. Because what they didn't say was, how or, or how you get this product or what's the great thing about this product. They showed why this product is important. So they got emotional on people. And, you know, you look at the way that Apple as a company and now the, the most, the world's, the, the, the richest company in the world with a market capitalization of close to a trillion dollars. So, I mean, they must be doing something reasonably right. And they do everything Um, all about why. And so, you know, you can take lessons from that and say, well, um, why is it that Apple has been so successful? It's because they've captured the why factor, that thing that gets, the, that, that, that makes people feel good 
or makes them feel emotional and it gives them an emotional attachment. They feel like Apple, like they give everyone an Apple sticker. You know, Dell doesn't give people a Dell sticker. I mean, who's going to put a Dell sticker on the back of their car, whereas Apple people put their Apple on the back of their car because now they feel they're part of a tribe. Right? So there's all of those, you know, incredibly subtle tricks that they um, that they apply, which we can learn from. And part of the learning from my perspective on that was us deciding to invest our life savings in the production of the Polyphosis film because for us, and we didn't want to make a film about a farm that was a documentary about how. Um, we wanted to show a documentary about why. And so it's an emotional story and um, it, it tells people about the why factor of, of why it's important um, why you should change your food habits um, and all the rest of it and uh, and gives the examples of why a whole lot of people within this film have um, have done just that. And that makes people feel good. Um, they don't feel as intimidated and they, and they can identify themselves as in, in the characters that, it, that we um, cover, um, do case studies of in this film. And with that, we have the expectation that that will drive, a, uh, and we hope with others doing something similar, that will drive some change because agriculture is in the business of supplying food and fibre and, to an extent, energy products to consumer demand. And so ultimately it's the consumer out there, the mum and dad, the soccer mum, you know, the average person out there, the middle class and all the rest of it, but out there who are going to a supermarket and some of them are going to Walmart, some of them are going to 7-Eleven, some of them are going to Whole Foods, some of them are going to whole, to farmers market, some of them are going to buying clubs, some are, some are engaging with others in cooperatives and so on. We'd like to, through this, to say, all right, well, actually think about that a bit more and, and question what you're supporting here. Do you want to have? Do you want to support um, producers who have the health of this planet um, and the, have the health and vitality of the food as their first priority, or do you have, or do you want to support people and organisations who don't have that view? It's up to you. You, as the consumer, support one or the other, and that's an energetic exchange through the through the shifting of dollars. And um, so you do have some power there, and we firmly believe that um, just like once upon a time Apple didn't exist, now they do. And uh, that all starts with the kernel of an idea and a, a kernel of practice, and uh, bite by bite, dollar by dollar, um, if people want to, we can change what's going on through through the change of consumer demand. And Big enterprises and corporations, etc., all understand this perfectly and they will recalcitrantly use their lobbying funds and all of the rest of it to prevent anybody from threatening their, their livelihoods or their, um, their corporations. So we're well aware of that, but um, we'll still keep at it. What's your opinion of intentional communities? Um, one thing that I've asked several intentional communities is... Um, how do they um, 
attract new people, especially people coming from cities. Uh, at times, it seems that intentional communities are kind of escapist or far away and in rural areas. And I know a lot of it is experimental and some of it has to do with environmental concerns. But do you see them as like little uh, pockets of, of hope and change regarding that type, the type of, of things you're talking about? Or do you see them as uh, too small to be able to make an impact and that it would be important to create those type of societies in bigger cities and closer to major uh, urban environments? It's mm, an interesting one. I think um, most people... Uh... Look, I've, I've, I've been to a whole host of um, intentional, more so-called intentional communities or eco-villages, whatever you want to call them. Um, the more successful ones that I've seen have been really clear in their um, in their foundation. And, uh, and what I mean by successful is that they've, um, they've been able to sustain a population of people and um, that, the ultimate success for an intentional community from my perspective is do the children of the founders or the grandchildren of the founders actually still live there um, and not as economic refugees, but they live there because uh, they actually want to live there and they want to make that place part of their life. Um, so I don't see that too often. I mean, I, I understand completely uh, why people um, do them and, you know, people have done this sort of stuff for a long time. I mean, they've, um, you, know, you could say the pilgrims came came here for that reason to the US. Uh, people people moved to Bolivia and Uruguay and um, and so on to set up um, utopias down there because they were so disgruntled with um, feudal Europe or other parts of the world. So it's, it's not it's not a unique tradition to today. And uh, I see that. Um, yeah, look, there's some of these some of these places breeding incredible innovation because you you pull together on effectively enclaves of like-minded people with a with a similar vision, and uh, there's a lot of innovation goes on. But um, how sustained those places are as habitats for those people is uh, is quite indifferent and typically not that successful. Now, one of the things that we recommend to people who are who are sort of talking this kind of thing is saying, well, you know, there are there are lots of towns all over the world that um, are declining in their population and actually have pretty good resources. Um, they have reticulated water supplies and they have housing and they have this, that and the other. Um, and that's, um, that's something that... Um, we often recommend to people. I know that within Europe, uh, especially after the global financial crisis, a lot of people started to move move out to um, you know, villages in Spain and so on. You know, Spanish people would move out to the villages in Spain because they found they're actually incredibly livable places, um, and you've got multi generations of people, and not everyone is of like mind. So that creates a diversity of opinion and worldview and whatnot, which when engaged with, um, um, can also can 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 equally be a place of can be as equally as innovative a place um, as it can be where you set yourself in an enclave with uh, 
with um, like-minded others. So, yeah, I, I think certainly there's there's been some great things that have happened out of it, and it does certainly get people thinking about well, if I were to set up a um, uh, a denser populated landscape, one um, this is how I might go about it. So there's been there's been some certainly some architectural landscape architectural outcomes which have been uh, really interesting. I personally wouldn't live in one though. Winner. Oh, I like diversity. I like I like the fact that um, I, I, I want to be part of communities where it's not just people like me. I mean, I want to have I want to have I want to find people who who have a different political view to me. I want to I want to be with them and others who I. You know, if I want to be with people who are exactly like me, well then, um, or who share not completely but a very close worldview to myself, well then I'll go and visit some friends or spend some time with my inner family. But uh, I personally like um, to have a high degree of diversity um, in my human relationships. Good to know. Um, as we wrap up the interview, can you tell us how to... Uh, get a hold of you and your organization and I just found um, the website for your film but can you just tell us um, uh, briefly how we can contact you or people interested in the type of work that you're doing um, what's the best way to learn more about it um, well probably uh, well we have a website regrarians r-e-g-r-a-r-i-a-n-s dot org um, so we've got that page, which has got all of the stuff about us. And um, we also have face, uh, Facebook presence. Um, we've got our Facebook uh, page, and we've got a pretty well-populated uh, Facebook group, um, the Regrarians Facebook group, which people can join. And there's a lot of very interesting characters on there and daily conversation. Um, and the Polyfaces film, well, you can link that through the Regrarians website, but it also has its own website and it's at polyfaces p-o-l-y-f-a-s no, sorry f-a-c-e-s uh, polyfaces um, dot com and um, you can buy the DVDs and uh, buy streaming um, option as well and, um, and you can go from there. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, just real quick, uh, what's a regrarian again for our public um um, it's a word that I, I came up with, um, which is it's a it's a neoliberalism of regenerative agrarian. So regrarian. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to interview uh, this evening. No worries. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity, and all the best with it. Take care. Thank you. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. The Mystic and the Skeptic podcast is broadcast Wednesdays at noon on Radio Free Nashville at RadioFreeNashville.org. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person Speaking, they do not necessarily reflect the opinions of What's Radio or The Farm.